Escape velocity. Derek, last night we went on our first official, authorized, sanctioned expenses paid. What? I had to pay my ticket. And for my popcorn. Yeah, me too. Field trip. Field trip, that's right. To a movie theater. Yep. For the purposes of viewing a movie and then commenting on it on this podcast, for the purpose of appealing to our mainstream listeners... What the fuck are we doing? We went to a movie? Yeah. What movie did we see? We went and we saw Darren Aronofsky's film, Noah. A controversial film. Some controversy yet. Amongst who? Right-wing religious people. Yeah. Okay, so we were two of four people in the theater for this fucking movie. For Noah, this blockbuster movie. Well, it's already been out for like almost a month. So Darren Aronofsky, a guy who's made movies that we like, like Pi, yeah. The Wrestler. Interesting, unexpected movies, generally. Generally, yeah. yeah. And I was interested because it was Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. When I saw that it, it existed, I was surprised. And then when I saw it, I was again surprised that Darren Aronofsky made it. Because you felt it was outside of his, his wheelhouse. You know what? Let's just go. Let's just take away. Let's back up. First impressions. We intentionally did not discuss the movie. As we left the theater in silence. Now give me your, your initial thoughts. Uh, it kept my attention for its uh, length. <clears throat> and it didn't strike me as a very important film in my life. Are there those films? Do they exist? Yeah. Well, yeah. Captain Ron. Captain Ron, yes. The Thing. Uh-huh. Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. It's funny because all these movies are all from a very certain time of your life. They also all star. They all star Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell. <laughs> no, some movies. I think. I think some movies, including Pie and Fountain, the Fountain. Oh, the Fountain. Those are oh. two of his two of his movies that I think that I often think about. I don't think I'll be thinking about Noah a year from now, except when I think of the silly things. I think. I think for us, and, and possibly the reason you encouraged me to come watch it was because you had seen it previously you've already seen it twice now you're a fucking hoser (laughs) i think what resonated with you was the not very subtle vegetarian subtext yes not almost not even a subtext so yeah apparently darren aronofsky is vegan Mm -hmm. so no surprise there that he was maybe interested in 
leveraging that aspect of the film to send out a ham-fisted mainstream take on that. It's a very simple parable. There's not very many moving parts to it, right? So he's just taking a simple parable, which holds relevance today, and he wove it into a larger story, embellished where he needed to. But is the biblical story, the biblical story is about wickedness, not environmental degradation, right? So he's he's imposed that on on the story. Yeah, he's he has imposed that on the story. Um, but it is, I mean, what's the difference? What is like the wickedness of man is perhaps you could narrowly interpret it to mean it is the wickedness towards his fellow humans. But a parable is not meant to apply to just some particular time. The people who put the story of Noah's Ark on paper, who knew it not to be true, and who were trying to lay out some sort of guidebook for those who would come later after seeing what has happened in the past, you're supposed to interpret these things so that they can perhaps be applied as lessons. You know, I don't, so think, I don't think it was actually a warning that God, when you were so bad, would send death and destruction to kill you. It is holding the specter of something greater uh, that is meant to make you reflect on your ways. I know all that because I actually am a biblical scholar, but that's what I thought. That's what I thought was, you know, and obviously the, but isn't, isn't Lord of the Rings sufficient then? Isn't that a parable about unchecked power and fucking global catastrophe from industry? You know what though? But Lord of the Rings is about, um, cause they're clearing the forests and they're destroying everything and there's big smokestacks in the evil place. And it's the same fucking thing. Yeah, why, yeah, what's, what's the, why make this? What's the point? Well, because it, you're you're taking, I think, the further back you can reach to pull uh, such a universally known story and interpret it in a way that seems even moderately relevant uh, for the current time, as opposed to just making something up new. I mean, it, it's your hook. It's your hook to, to tell a story in a certain way and, and to sell some fucking movie tickets, I guess. But I thought it was pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of uh, sort of silliness which comes along with following there was unbelievable story the scenes of animals on mass dramatically marching into this boat and then falling asleep yeah well they fucking had, unbelievable um as you can imagine and that was another thing is that he uh he also refused to use any live animals in the making of the movie which you can kind of tell <laughs> yeah I think it, that's like that's like saying Scooby Doo refused to use live <laughs> animals in the making of Scooby Doo. But that was Industrial Light and Magic that did that work. Yeah, well, they did it on the cheap. <laughs> but I thought it was also interesting because they're, I don't know, he's drawing a lot of broad connections, the connections between violence, eating animals, human hubris, even this like seesaw of like lust and violence you know that they kind of show through ham's character but i was kind of i was kind of rooting for the full-on misanthropic end a little bit what would that have been uh that would have been that there was no there was no baby there was no continuing line and that was the end of people but But doesn't everybody know the end of the story already oh well you can do whatever you want when you're making a movie no, you can't. You have to stick to the source material, which is the the Bible, which has giants walking around made of boulders. 
giant I thought, balls. You know what? You know what? The, the funniest part <clears throat> of us going to see that movie was, was it was pretty much Earth Day by the time we saw it, which mm-hmm. is today. And is today Earth Day? Today's Earth Day. Happy Earth Day! And before the movie, we saw that ad. Yeah. They played an ad for the Canadian energy companies, for oil companies. Yeah. Synovus. Synovus, showing all the important things that oil does for us. Yeah. All the destructive things that oil does for us. Yeah. And um, ending with the tagline, oil, we have decades left <laughs> or something like that. Like they concede in the fucking ad that there's yeah. only decades. There's, well, there's decades for sure. Yeah. You'd think they'd say there's hundreds of years yeah. left of oil, but they say decades. So before, wa- before watching Noah, it's especially funny because you'd think with that knowledge, you would gain some wisdom and start planning now for something different. But they're just saying, keep buying it. It's yeah. important. Don't stop the pipeline. We have decades left of this lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I went to the uh, com or moretothestory.ca website What's from that, that Synovus ad, uh, which is totally ridiculous. It is? Yeah, did you know that oil is used to build schools, hospitals, and water treatment plants to keep your community safe. It's so funny that they pick those. It's so stupid. Yeah. It's so stupid because you could just, as soon as they say schools, you could say drones. Yeah. You say hospitals, tanks, <laughs> libraries, machine guns. Yeah. It works though. It works on people. That's because everyone's so stupid. Well, so that was our field trip. <laughs> I guess that wasn't much of a field trip. I'm going to give that movie five bags of popcorn and three tailings ponds. So Noah, there's no way you should go see this movie. <laughs> but didn't you find it entertaining? You said, um, it, you said it kept your interest. The the filmmaking style. Yeah, yeah, the... but but that's not. I mean, I said it kept my attention. Yeah. But at the end of it, there was many other things I could have done with that two and a half hours. That's how I qualify movies. That's your yardstick. Yeah. It's got to be like, wow, there's almost nothing else I would have done for that hour and a half that that would have been as fun as that, which is why I don't like any movies Mm -hmm. because there's almost nothing. There's almost no movie ever made except for Captain Ron, The Thing, Big Trouble, those kind of movies. Maybe Temple of Doom, all movies that are totally racist, sexist, homophobic, but that fucking speak to me. Maybe we should rethink the ongoing movie review segment. Yeah. On the other hand, it's not like there's nothing I won't sit in front of a screen for. You know that. I know that. I know it all too well. Oh, boy. Derek's naked YouTube channel. I often watch hockey and I feel like, well, that's not true because at the end of most Leaf games, I feel like, why did I fucking sit through that? How humiliating to me. But there are a few things. There are there are some things that have quote unquote entertainment value that at the end of it, at the end of the hour... I don't feel like I've just been robbed. You suggested I watch the the reboot of Carl Sagan's Cosmos, a new series with Neil deGrasse Tyson. 
I did. And that was an hour I didn't feel like I had been robbed of after I'd watched it. In fact, I felt the opposite. I felt I had been given something. Enriched. A new lease on life itself. Really? No, not quite that. But I really enjoyed it. No, I agree 100%. I have watched now six episodes. Oh, Leash, there's six. I've watched one. We should have Cosmos viewing parties. So this is a reboot of Carl Sagan's classic series, Cosmos, A Personal Voyage. Now called Cosmos, An Unexpected Journey. No, that was The Hobbit. (laughs) Large shoes to fill. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I was sort of skeptical going into it because I was like, it's going to be fucking a downgrade. But, but I don't think it is. No, no, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's very exciting. I, every every episode, I'm. It's one of those things too where you're, like you said, you're you're not necessarily learning anything new. But because he is a science educator for a living, and there's been a lot of excellent writing that's gone into the show, you feel like you're being taught something new. You're being reminded. Mm-hmm. You're understanding again because you know your day to day life. You're not thinking about the intricacies of the atoms that that we are made of and that surround us or about the infinitesimal size of our own galaxy compared mm-hmm. to the entire universe mm-hmm. or the age of the universe or how old the light that we see in the skies is. you just like, whatever, oh, I gotta get up. Oh, I'm hungry. Yeah, where's the coffee? Oh, what am I doing? Oh, I'm going to go back to bed. Oh, what day is it? Oh, God, I can't do this anymore. And then, <laughs> but then you watch Cosmos and you're like, oh my God, the the universe is a wonder. Each cell in my body is a fucking miracle. Every second is precious. And then the next morning, oh, <laughs> where's the coffee? Oh, uh, when's Cosmos on the next? Oh, okay, I gotta <laughs> wait. Next time, wait for that. I'll just watch all six in one sitting, eating bags of chips. I mean, it's not every day something on Escape Velocity Radio gets two thumbs up. Cosmos, two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. I'm going to give it five bags of Nebulae mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. mixed with three three super clusters. Cosmic super clusters. I'm going to give it 10 billion neutrinos and 500 megatons of dark matter. I think we also give it two thumbs up because... We see this as an opportunity for society, a small opportunity, but an important one for mainstream society to jump on board the science ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To be reinvigorated, to cast aside their superstitions about the world, the physical world, use an evidence-based approach to assessing the reality in front of them. There's not many opportunities anymore for this to happen since Carl Sagan's original Cosmos series for mainstream science to get a foothold. Especially in, airing on the Fox network. Yeah, in, in, a, in a society that is off its fucking rocker as far as its critical thinking capacity goes. This, mm-hmm. is, this is a good opportunity. That's why it's exciting for people who fancy themselves as more critical thinkers than the average person in society or the average yeah. person who watches fucking Fox. Yeah. So, please... Watch Cosmos instead of going to watch Noah. When you put those two things side by side, there's, I mean, yeah, there's not even, it's not even a discussion, but I still, we feel just like, had a discussion. I still feel like in the realm of movies that you can see in a theater, yeah. there's not many opportunities to see a movie with as much interest in it as Noah. Yeah. These days. I guess once you've seen a movie like Contact, it's hard for any movie to 
like that movie was made in 1996 or in 1997 mm-hmm. and nothing since then has managed even visually they haven't done anything better i would say noah is the cgi is worse <laughs> in noah than in this fucking movie before mac made a performer 6400 <laughs> that's unbelievable yeah go watch contact go watch the original cosmos read carl sagan's dragons of eden and carl sagan's demon haunted world science as a candle in the dark go check that shit out then come back and talk to me so speaking of an evidence-based approach to assessing reality yes you ever thought much about this whole gmo thing define much have you ever given it a second of thought the controversy surrounding genetically modified food yes one second for sure one second thought I'm probably a little bit too ignorant of the GMO issue mm-hmm. to comment, except that I've heard both sides and I don't care either way. <laughs> I like that. I, I wouldn't even say I don't I like care. I wouldn't even say I don't care. I've heard both sides and I've... It is fair to say I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Phillips is an EU affairs journalist and science writer who has written for the EU Observer, The Guardian, Red Pepper, Nature, Scientific American, and others. Okay, so Lee, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, it's great to talk to you. So before we get started, uh, I just have to ask to get out of the way. Exactly how much is Monsanto paying you to shill for their <laughs> technology of death? Uh, yeah, no, nothing at all. Absolutely nothing. I know. I, yeah, just to be very, very clear, I have unfortunately, uh, as a, a freelance science writer, I yeah, no, there's there's no there's no money I'm I'm getting from anybody to uh, to write about this at all. Oh, that's very unfortunate. The entire angle for my interview has just been totally blown. Okay, so the reason that I wanted to have you on is because I was intrigued by your debate with. Emma Hughes in Red Pepper magazine earlier mm-hmm. this year, in which you mounted what you termed to be a left defense of GMOs. Yeah. So maybe you can take us through it. Uh, to start, you make the analogy that the left's claims about the science of GMOs are somewhat akin to the right's denial of climate change. Yeah, I think it's 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 basically identical to this. You we have a thoroughgoing consensus uh, within the scientific community on uh, anthropogenic global warming and the right the the sort of the climate skeptic right the you know the tea party in the united states these sorts of characters the koch brothers they want to present climate change as an issue that uh, on which there is no consensus within the scientific community and want to have this sort of false balance out there when in fact we are all very clear on the green left and, and within the scientific community as well that the uh, the consensus is overwhelming. We have the same level of consensus within the scientific community on the uh, the safety, the, in terms of the health safe uh, health safety and the lack of environmental uh, problems uh, that c- uh, could be created by genetic modification. Uh, it's it is as robust a consensus as uh, there is on anthropogenic global warming, and. Where we are very, very quick on the green left to uh, to and correctly point out when right wing activists will uh, glom onto a particular single study 
that purports to suggest that there is for I mean the example that I use in the in the article is on sea level rise there was an article in um, the Journal of Coastal Studies that uh, by a pair of uh, engineers, uh, one of which was with the the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, purporting to say that sea level rise is is basically a myth that there's no evidence of this. Now this you know this was this was a, uh, a scientific study. It was peer reviewed, but you, you know very quickly it was taken apart by the the rest of the scientific community. You know the Tea Party, a uh, lot of anti climate change as uh, uh, climate skeptic um, activists in the United States glommed onto this one study. Uh, and and sort of pointed at it and said, "Look, you know, look, this is sciency. Uh, here we go. We've got we've got a, a breakdown in the consensus. Well, no, we don't have this. What we have is a single study. And uh, this is what Andy Revkin, who's the New York Times' uh, environment correspondent, uh, terms the single study syndrome, where uh, people will, yeah, as I say, sort of glom onto a, a single." Uh, paper and uh, present that as uh, to suggest that there is no consensus in the scientific community when that's just actually not the case. And th- this is the same thing with uh, with genetic modification. Repeatedly, we've seen in the last uh, little while uh, anti-GM activists really uh, glom on to this one study by Gilles-Éric uh, Serralini, who is this uh, who is a molecular biologist, biologist at the University of Cayenne in France. Uh, a paper that purported to uh, show that there was a certain strain of rat uh, would uh, there was a high incidence of tumors uh, when these rats were fed a mixture of uh, Monsanto uh, GM maize or corn and um, the pesticide. Sorry, yes. And the instant this came out, the uh, the scientific community really um, because because it was uh, incredibly well reported in the media this was picked up by all of the newswires most news uh, mainstream newspapers around the world you know french study uh, shows that uh, that gm causes uh, cancer in rats and there were these horrible photographs of these rats with these massive tumors coming out of their bellies you know, spread across the media but the methodology of this study was incredibly poor and was was attacked from all sides, not just from Monsanto and the usual suspects, but as a scientist thoroughly independent of of the biotech industry who noticed how you know the sample size was far too small, that the the, the strain of rats, rag uh, dolly rats, have a a high incidence of tumors already. Um, the statistical methodology was in, it was highly unconventional. It was it was really unclear, uh, even when reading the study, what exactly the control rats were fed. Um, and when he, when the the study was uh, was 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 so widely criticized, uh, Seralini himself refused to release his raw data. On top of this, ahead of the release of the study, uh, he tried to force all the all science journalists into a confidentiality agreement in order to get a, an, a prior copy of the uh, of the study ahead of publication this is incredibly unusual normally journalists are given access to uh, to a study ahead of release we just aren't allowed to to write about it until the, the the publication date but we don't have to sign any sort of confidentiality agreement and this was widely seen within the uh, science journalistic community as an effort to to try to Sort of stage manage the the release and make sure that there wasn't any criticism ahead of of the release. Then on top of this, um, Serlini himself 
and he's a consultant for Savine Pharma, uh, which is this uh, sort of alternative medicine uh, pharmaceutical company in France that produces so-called detoxification products and homeopathic medicine, which of course is it's also bogus. Um, and the study itself was in part funded by a pair of French uh, supermarket multinationals who within days of the release of the study um, launched a new line of GM-free food. <laughs> so, yeah, now despite all of this, uh, the anti-GM activist community has, has, has glommed onto this one particular study, ignoring the fact that in the wake of uh, the release of this study, you know, six uh, French uh, academies of science condemned it. We have the Royal Society, we have uh, the European uh, Food Safety um, Agency, we just, you know, uh, scientific body after scientific body has announced this study. If the same thing were to happen in terms of climate change, we would be laughing anybody who glommed onto a, a single a single study uh, out of the park. Uh, we wouldn't accept that. Yet in this case, we, ex we accept it because it fits with a, a particular sort of ideology. So you also talk about how GMOs have been used outside of the realm of agriculture yeah. to great benefit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this is one of the things that, that's interesting. There's, there's so much of a focus on, uh, in terms of the activist community, on uh, genetic modification within agriculture. But there, there are many, many other areas uh, where this is happening, particularly within health. So uh, one of the first areas where, where we saw uh, genetic modification in any sort of real-world application was in the development of Humulin, which is synthetic human insulin. And that was the insertion of, the, of a human insulin gene into E. coli bacteria. So I get, so this is, you know, this is cross-species sort of um, action going on here, which is one of the things you, you regularly hear from, from activists that, anti-GM activists, you know, uh, it's just not natural because we're crossing species boundaries. Another thing you could say about that is actually that happens in nature all the time anyway. But um, and this is this has been an incredible humulin, uh, this uh, synthetic insulin has been incredibly useful to to, to people in, its, in 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 a medical context. So this is very far away from from agriculture. Other examples would be in using similar sort of transgenic uh, methodologies or blood clotting factors for hemophiliacs or human growth hormone to combat dwarfism. Uh, where the proteins uh, were previously derived from cadavers, which would re potentially could re uh, have resulted in you know, the transmission of diseases. Uh, the hepatitis B and the HPV vaccines uh, involve uh, transgenic technology. Yet in, in, in many of these cases, you have, well, certainly with Humulin, the, uh, the synthetic uh, insulin, the Center for Food Safety, the U.S. Organic Consumers Association, uh, GM Watch, you know, they, they're describing uh, this as, you know, sort of Franken medicine and that uh, we should just go back to the, uh, the so-called natural variety without any evidence of, of there being any, 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 any harm. And fundamentally, the problem that I'm arguing here is that once upon a time, the left had a very clear understanding that technologies that can be used in a bad uh, situation by bad people in, a, in you know colonialism or um, in a sort of capitalist context in an, in another context could be liberatory 
the the unfortunate thinking here is that uh, anything that is natural is good and anything synthetic is bad instead of the division where it should be which is things that are corporate and capitalist are bad and things that are publicly oriented and and socialistic that's that you know that's the division that we should be thinking about it's it's a uh, market versus sort of uh, socialism sort of argument instead of natural versus synthetic. Uh, the natural versus synthetic sort of discourse has very little in keeping with left traditions of rationalism and and science. I mean, the the, the very the, the origins of being left was about rejection of uh, authority, you know, the church authority or, or monarchical authority, and their irrational arguments as to why they they were in these positions of authority. Uh, we said, well, you know, there, there's that that is illegitimate. It's not. It's irrational. It was essentially an application of scientific thinking to society. Um, and the argument I want to make about genetic modification is that yes, Monsanto is their motherfuckers. The, the really awful aggressive patent protection. Uh, but you know, Microsoft engages in aggressive patent protection. Apple engages in aggressive patent protection. And you know, go after them. Absolutely, we need to fight their their uh, aggressive patent protection and all sorts of other aspects of their corporate domination of, of agriculture. But potentially, genetic modification could be and is being used in progressive ways that are that are distinct from uh, market-driven uh, interests from from the profit motive. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that because it's not just the Monsantos and the Syngentas who have been the target of anti-GMO activism. Uh, it's also been non-corporate research uh, as well. Can you can you point out a couple examples of that? Yeah, it's really 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 sad. Last year, well, no, 2012, sorry, um, I was in Mexico City uh, investigating for, for Nature, the UK Science Journal, um, a series of bombings of uh, nanotechnology research labs by eco-anarchist, uh, well, more sort of anarcho-primitivist is probably more accurate to describe their, their ideology. And while I was there, um, I spoke to a, a pair of molecular biologists at a public university who were engaged in some transgenic research. And they had been uh, targeted uh, by similar sorts of activists um, who had their offices had been um, the target of uh, arson attacks uh, twice. Now, this pair of researchers, as I said, they were working at a public university. The, they consider themselves definitely on the left. In fact, they describe themselves as socialists. They were supportive of the, the big movement um, at the time was called Yo uh, Soy Cien Trente Dos, which is the, the sort of, you know, a sort of Occupy style movement uh, of, of, of the squares at the time against the, the you know, right wing electoral shenanigans and corruption. And, you know, they read the uh, the left wing newspapers uh, every week and, you know, join demonstrations were big supporters of trade unions. And they were quite frustrated that a great deal of the uh, crop research that had historically been performed in their country was basically done by northern experts with very little knowledge of the needs of Mexican farmers and, and consumers. And so their aim uh, instead was to develop transgenic crops that were resistant to drought and insects that built on a sort of local local knowledge. They felt that their work was in the service of social justice and, and as a product of their belief in social justice, not despite that. It was absolutely a part of their life. They, they didn't see it as separate. I mean, you know, the, the, the pair of them, they had a... It wasn't a huge office, and they had their kids, uh, their young kids in them because they couldn't afford daycare at the time. I mean, these are just salt-of-the-earth people. 
And it, it was just so frustrating to see that they were the target of uh, such ignorance, basically. In the UK, again in, in 2012, there was there was a campaign group called Take the Flower Back, uh, which had announced that they were going to decontaminate some uh, GM wheat uh, that was being tested by the Rothamsted Research Institute, which is, again, a public um, research institute, one of the oldest agricultural research institutes in the world, uh, because they were testing a grain that gives off an odor that repels aphids and also attracts wasps that uh, parasitize the insects. As a result of this, if it was successful after the trials, the, uh, the wheat would actually require less pesticide. And yet, the, the activists felt that they needed to go and decontaminate or tear up the, the research. Uh, next month, there was a 30-year-old research project in Italy. Uh, this was one of the longest-running GM trials in Europe, involving transgenic olive trees, uh, cherry trees, and kiwi fruit vines. And uh, they had been ordered by uh, a court uh, to destroy their the, the, these trials with only a few days' notice. And this was under pressure from an anti-GM campaign group called the Genetic, uh, Genetic Rights Foundation. Again, the hopeful product of this uh, non-profit research uh, from a plant scientist at the University of, of Tushia was, again, that there would be a, a reduction in, in the need for pesticides. So these non-corporate, ostensibly, you know, public interest research projects that are being attacked either legally or physically, these are presumably on the grounds that these people are looking to mitigate some imagined environmental impact yep. coming in the long term from uh, this GM agriculture. So let's talk about that. It seems like it's a pretty big tent where there are a lot of claimed pros, such as, you know, reduced tillage, reduced pesticide use, uh, and more, depending on what the actual modification is to the crop. Um, but then there's also claims of increased herbicide use and the spawning of super weeds, for example. Yeah. So what can you talk to us about that a little bit? Well, it, it, again, it depends on what uh, what product we're talking about. One of the we have to understand that there it's not just one thing. It's it's so many different potential products out there. It's sort of like saying, well, is is food good or bad for it? It depends <laughs> what food we're talking about. Yeah. Um, in the case of uh, BT uh, toxin-based products, we absolutely the the, the evidence is in that uh, we are seeing, and because of the reduction in the use of synthetic pesticides in this particular kind of product, we're seeing an increase in biodiversity in the areas where that uh, where that's being used. There is, in terms of super weeds, that is the one sort of uh, kernel, if you will, of of truth that the anti-GM activists have. Except that they're sort of missing missing the whole point there. Super weeds are a real issue, but it's not unique to GM products. Any time that you introduce any sort of new new method to to counter any bad thing that is happening in in nature, uh, to counter pests or uh, disease. Let's say you kill off ninety percent of the pests. There will be ten percent of the uh, maybe. Let's say ten percent of the pests uh, that are not not susceptible to whatever intervention you're you're engaging in there. Eventually, after a number of years, all uh, that will be left will be the pests that are not susceptible. Then you have to come up with some new intervention uh, to to combat those. That's just evolution. That will happen no matter what you do. That's not unique to uh, the use of uh, GM crops. That happens 
independent of that. That, as I say, that's just evolution. Now, the, what we can do is we can try to slow down that process. One of the best ways to slow down that process, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, superweeds, is just you know integrated pest management. This will require. Uh, it basically is a lot more labor intensive, certainly. But that's, as I say, that is true no matter, that, that's independent of genetic modification. Getting rid of GM crops is not going to solve that problem. What we're going to have to be doing in, to solve that problem is just completely reconceiving of how we engage in, in basically we're looking at capitalism there because a much more labor intensive uh, pest management process is going to cause farmers it costs them a lot more there's greater pressure there's pressure from supermarkets uh, supermarket chains to uh, to to reduce their costs so they're going to go for whatever is the uh, the, the cheapest uh, the cheapest option there but that again as i say that is that's capitalism that's completely independent of GM. If you got rid of GM, you would still be still be confronting the, the increased neoliberalization, if you will, of, of of agriculture. So in some respects, one of the one of the, the real worries I have around this is that people are targeting a particular technology instead of targeting an economic system. If we look at you know, nuclear weapons, probably the most horrible thing that uh, technology that, that humanity has ever developed. But then we, we put that alongside nuclear medicine, which, you know, has been absolutely fantastic. Um, and we certainly want to uh, wouldn't want to get rid of that. The core science, the core technology is, is effectively no different. What changes there is not the technology, really. No, the science hasn't changed. What has changed is the purpose to which the technology is, is put. What has changed is the 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 economic the economic context of, of of the technology. Coming back to super weeds, in targeting the technology, they're really missing the forest for the trees. They are they are missing the the real causes of of problems within agriculture. We could talk about you know the the famous. Uh, you know, suicide, farmer suicides in India. That, that was my next question. Right. And I was going to say, you know, well-known activist Vandana Shiva was actually just in Winnipeg doing a talk for the CBC radio program Ideas. Right. Among some of the less scientific and more philosophical points she had about seeds not wanting to be modified, uh, she did talk a lot about the effect of the introduction um, of GM crops had on farmers not being able to save seeds for replanting, being driven into debt. And yes, she brought up the uh, epidemic of farmer suicides in India, which she laid pretty squarely on the introduction of BT cotton. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I have absolutely no time for Vandana Shiva. I think she's a, she's a the less the less time that we uh, as progressives give platform platforms to her. I think I think the better. I, I mean, her fundamental idea is that poverty is is a Western uh, Western invention. It's a colonialist invention, and that uh, people in uh, poverty are just it's, a, it's just a different way of life. I and mean, no, sorry, there is, poverty is, is is a universal concept. It is real, and we want to get rid of it. It's, it's it is not just another way of being. And uh, I, I think it's absolutely vile that she goes around the world um, uh, spouting uh, this 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 nonsense about about poverty. As she, you know, fly, you know, she's clearly not living in any uh, any impoverished existence herself. But that's that's a sort of secondary thing to the the question of suicides. It's just fundamentally false. There there have been a series of studies by um, agricultural institutes, completely independent uh, of 
industry, and in, in many cases, very very critical of corporate uh, corporatization of agriculture. And they, what their uh, their findings were that uh, there there is no correlation between the the introduction uh, of GM technology within agriculture in India and farmer suicides. There have been farmer suicides, but we really need to place the blame for that in things like you know predatory commercialization of the uh, of agriculture the, the removal of government subsidies at the same time that western subsidies for cotton have been maintained the cracking open of the market in in india at the same time that we we maintain our protections in in the north while we subsidize our farmers western cotton subs yeah all, all these sorts of things so we're, what we're, what we have to look at there is a range of different villains which are in many cases in, in almost all cases uh, the the sort of common villains that we come across when we have any discussion about the global justice movement about globalization uh, trade agreements these sorts of things uh, these are the the, the 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 problems and if we were to say if we were magically to get rid of bt cotton from uh, from India, those farmer suicides would still be happening because those uh, we had not solved the problem of investor rights language within uh, trade agreements, the sort of cracking open of of markets at the same time that we maintain protections for you know Western agribusiness. That's those are the real villains. Those are the the, re, the real enemy. That's the real enemy. So I'm curious what your take is on the various bans then that have been uh, enacted on GM crops and GM foods worldwide, um, and also on the food labeling campaigns that we've seen in recent years in the U.S. and elsewhere. You, you mentioned in the piece that a lot of the funding for the California labeling campaign, for example, came from multinational organic food producers. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the hilarious thing, right? So we are supposed to be, uh, you know, oh, Monsanto's totally evil, Cargill, Syngenta. When, yeah, but, yeah, they are, absolutely. But then suddenly we have this blind spot to uh, to Aoshen, to Carrefour, to to these, to, to, uh, to Whole Foods, to, to all these, you know, big organic uh, companies. And the reality is that much of the uh, the so-called organic industry has now been bought up by many of the, exactly the same huge supermarkets and uh, agricultural firms. The, and these multinationals, they don't care. You know, they they if they can they can ramp up the the, the price of, uh, of of produce and, uh, and expand the, the the organic market. Uh, they're going to do that. They don't care. Uh, uh, about the science, they don't care about the, uh, the the supposed benefit to people. They're a- absolutely indifferent to it. And so, how can I put this? Absolutely, there's certainly a role for for organic agriculture in certain contexts. But in other contexts, we may actually be seeing increased carbon emissions because of the indirect land use change, because it requires a lot more land uh, to um, to uh, to grow organic produce as opposed to uh, conventionally grown uh, produce. It's not again not to say I don't want to dis uh, organic uh, agriculture completely. I think I think there's definitely a role for, for it somewhere. But what I'm trying to get across is that there has been a heavy investment on the part of major multinational corporate uh, corporations um, in the organic industry, and they don't want to see their their investment threatened. Uh, so this returns back to to the to the point that I was making earlier about how Jill Eric Seralini, the this uh, the scientist uh, behind the the famous or infamous rat tumor study. His study was bankrolled by Carrefour and Auchen, the, these two French uh, supermarket multinationals. These are some of the biggest supermarket chains in the world. Uh, they go by other names in other countries, but you know, um, but, you know they're, they're still absolutely huge. If the same thing were happening to any sort of study that purported to show that there, there was no evidence of, of any health risk from 
from a particular GM product, if that were bankrolled by Syngenta or uh, Monsanto, we'd be screaming, screaming bloody murder about how we can't trust this science because it's, it's bankrolled by, by these people. By some big multinational, and we'd be pretty right in in having that sort of uh, concern. Why shouldn't we have the same concern on on this end? Uh, organic is big business, and uh, we should be, you know, as, as skeptical on this side of things as and and the protection or the attempts by these multinationals to protect their investment as we should be in terms of the the attempts by Syngenta and and uh, Cargill and. Uh, Monsanto to protect their uh, BSF and buyer and so on to protect their their investments. So a few episodes back uh, on this show, we were talking about uh, the growing threat of antibiotic resistance and so-called superbugs. Yep. Part of which is due to there being no financial incentive for pharmaceutical companies to do research on new antibiotics. Yeah. And you wrote a great piece in Jacobin magazine uh, called Socialized Big Pharma, where you argued that because drug research is so important to public health, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be left in the hands of private for-profit corporations. Yeah. So I'm wondering, do you think the same should apply to uh, GM research and perhaps to all crop research in general? Because, you know, the sustainability and integrity of our food system is certainly as important, if not more important, uh, to public health than even pharmaceutical research. Well, I mean, fu- fundamentally, this is this is the socialist argument that whatever domain, whatever jurisdiction we're talking about, whatever sector of the economy, the profit motive will will distort what is what is produced. You know, if you think of a Venn diagram, there is what is produced in terms of uh, as a result of the interest in profit. And then there is another circle which you could describe as what is useful to humanity. And the, the two circles do, there's you know, a little bit of a crossover there. It's not so much that capitalism is evil, it's more that, or immoral, it's more that it's amoral. And so if there's a particular area that is is not profitable, but is useful to humanity, they won't engage in that research, they won't they won't develop that product. And we could say the same thing about agriculture. I would certainly, I, I mean, I, it's not so much that I think that uh, agriculture research should be socialized. Um, I think everything should be. And I think we should have begin to have the confidence on the left. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was 1991. It's, 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 it's decades now since the, uh, since the end of the Soviet Union. And I think we should be able to articulate once again that a socially just world, socialism, doesn't have to have anything to do with the Stalinized version that, that existed in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and so on. Be confident about hum- humanity's possibility to, to plan an economy uh, in the interest of, of human benefit, not private profit. So it doesn't just go for, for pharmaceuticals or for uh, agricultural research, but for, for anything. Emma Hughes, who wrote the rebuttal mm-hmm. to your uh, piece in Red Pepper, she makes the point that while GM may not be the boogeyman that it's made out to be, it's also not uh, a panacea or a solution to the problem of industrial agriculture and capitalism, obviously. Sure. She says that, you know, not only is the promise of GM's benefits often overblown, you know, citing uh, the example of the UN report, which concluded that GM could only play a small role in addressing the ongoing challenges of agriculture in the global south, but that ultimately what we need, as you say, is to radically reorganize our food system and agricultural practices if we want to feed the planet sustainably into the future and uh, through the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, so is it safe to assume that you would agree with that assessment? Um, yes and no. It- 
I agree that um, GM is no panacea in terms of feeding uh, 9 billion people. Uh, but so what? Maybe it'll play some small role. Or I mean, it's kind of, for me, it's a strange thing to be to be saying. It's, it's not going to save everything. So we don't, we're not going to do any of it. Well, what if it helps it a little bit? I mean, in the same way that food banks will not solve the problem of urban poverty. But should we not have food banks? The the ultimate solution doesn't preclude, uh, which is, of course, a, a reorganization of, of our economy. But in the meantime, can we not also have something that benefits a little bit? Uh, the, the, the classic examples in, in any sort of debate around GM food is golden rice, which is it's a variety of rice that was uh, genetically engineered to be enriched with beta carotene. You know, it, it increases the nutrient density of, of meals in those areas where um, rice is all that people can afford. Now, the argument that uh, Vandana Shiva and other activists will make is that, but that doesn't solve the problem of poverty. Even if you increase, the, if you're increasing the nutrition of, of people, of particularly children, uh, in these areas, you're not solving the problem of poverty. No, no, you're not. But in the meantime, why? Why can't we do something that helps right now? It, it seems just such a strange thing to be saying. It doesn't solve everything, therefore we don't want it. In between now and the glorious day that uh, we overthrow capitalism, there's some small things that we can, we can, we can do to try to uh, improve the situation. Some of those will be small reforms in, in terms of economics and politics, and some of them will be technological changes that benefit us. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and no doubt stir up a royal shitstorm with <laughs> our listeners. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Uh, but it's just it's just too important. Uh, I think the, the, the green left is really important and does lots of awesome stuff. And I don't want to uh, come across here that I'm, I'm beating up on everybody. There are far more things that we that we agree upon uh, than disagree upon. And let's you know, we'll all be on the same side of the barricades, I'm sure. But uh, this this is this is quite wrong. And, and the, the fundamental and why it's so important is that it's economically illiterate. It, it, it is it's a focus on you know, natural as, as normal and natural as good and, and, trans and, and, and wonderful and something synthetic and industrial and human as bad instead of looking at the division uh, as being between something that is capitalist and something that is socialist and or uh, and that's re the real division that we that I that I want to get across as I as I end the article it's you know let's uproot an unjust political economy not GM crops that's the thing that we need to keep in mind well thanks a lot lee all right really appreciate it great stuff i'd like to thank lee phillips for being a corporate shill <laughs> just kidding interesting interview yeah i thought so i feel my first impression is i think he overstates his criticism of vandana shiva i don't think he has no time for anything vandana shiva says no like, no i think there's a little bit of uh, hyperbole yeah behind that statement because even even some of the stuff she says that is a little non-scientific and flowery it's i think it comes from an anti-colonialist perspective mm -hmm. the part of this debate that interests me and that i think is relevant is really more of a technical debate what can we say about the current state of research and scientific consensus on the health and environmental safety of using this technology for food. The philosophical arguments about whether we should, quote unquote, should be genetically modifying plants, 
I guess it's just not very interesting to me because it seems irrelevant. But I think that there always is a very real danger when you're dealing with multinational companies with insane profit motive and little regard for human health or the environment, as many of these companies' track records indicate. There's a very real danger of technologies being railroaded through solely in the interests of short-term profit. So I think it's important to have robust safeguards in that in that way. But simultaneously, it's important to listen to what the research actually says and to recognize potential benefits from any any new technology in any regard. Right. It's going to take time because people's skepticism comes from a real place. This is the the society, the militarized science community that brought us the A-bomb, mm-hmm. that brought us the spill at Bhopal, the endless stream of examples of technology gone awry that mm-hmm. have destroyed habitable space on the planet. Yep. So you can see where people are coming from when they their knee-jerk reaction is like, now you're fucking with the food? Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, people, stop it. But on the other hand, science literacy has to come hand in hand with that skepticism. And there's, I don't think there's anything intrinsic to the contemporary radical political analysis that makes it more science literate than anybody else. I think there is just as much a proclivity towards heuristics or emotional or magical thinking as opposed to using an evidence-based approach like Lee talks about in the interview. I think an alternate interesting take on genetically modified food comes from uh, the organization called the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm concerned too. And in the interview, in a part that was edited out for brevity, I had broached the Union of Concerned Scientists position with Lee, and he was somewhat dismissive uh, of them as an organization. Oh, really? This is the the USC position on G. I'll just read this quick little summary, and I, to me, this this seems reasonable. The Union of Concerned Scientists see that. GE technology has potential benefits, but we are critics of its commercial application and regulation to date. GE has proved to be valuable in some areas, as in the contained use of engineered bacteria in pharmaceutical development, and some GE applications could turn out to play a useful role in food production. However, its applications in agriculture so far have fallen short of expectations and in some cases have caused serious problems. Rather than supporting a more sustainable agriculture and food system with broad societal benefits, the technology has been employed in ways that reinforce problematic industrial approaches to agriculture. Policy decisions about the use of GE have too often been driven by biotech industry PR campaigns rather than what science tells us about the most cost-effective ways to produce abundant food and preserve the health of our farmland. But that's not really against Lee's position because Lee is saying, let's understand the science. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You get the science right, and he's as critical as capitalist infrastructure as anybody else. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I think the difference here is that a position like uh, USC's is saying, recognizing the landscape in front of us and how we are seeing the technology being used, we need to be extra careful because the potential for abuse is great. The track record from these companies is terrible. And there are much larger solutions that could go further to helping our food system. Though things like trying to adopt agro-ecologically based 
agriculture and, and farming systems are excellent ideas, but seeing short-term realization of some of these much larger goals might be unlikely. Again, there's a lack of clarity over what the actual argument is. Mm -hmm. Lee is saying, understand the science, don't react to it. And he's agreeing that we must critique the system that oversees the technologies. Yeah. But don't just fucking, don't hate the technology, hate the system. Derek, you know as well as I do, I'm not sure how to get to our website. So I rely on you to tell me yeah. what people typed into a, a box on our website right. in response to our podcast. So did anybody respond to last month's podcast? No. Oh. No, just kidding. They did. Oh. They did. Some people. Few they, people. One person. What did they have to say about our ruminations on the perceived conflict between indigenous struggles and the animal liberation movement. What do you think the etymological connection is between ruminants, such as cows, and ruminations? Is it like when a cow is like digesting grass? Is that what makes them a ruminant? Probably. And then when you're ruminating on something, it's like you're digesting it? I don't know. It just struck me right now that there's a someone out there who understands etymology well you'll be shocked to hear it's not me we did receive some feedback uh good some of it pretty interesting well, I, I want to highlight one comment so this is from uh vegan lucas vegan is, lucas yeah i wonder if i can get his real name lucas from here it's probably his real name if you haven't his figured. first name it's is not vegan. probably lucas so lucas i'm just going to call him lucas good idea he has some good feedback on our discussions about whether veganism is like a moral baseline for working on behalf of animals, which, you know, I think in retrospect and maybe in reaction to his and some other comments, I might've overdone my thoughts on that a little bit what in the mean? moment. I think that you could listen to what I was saying and think this guy doesn't think that veganism is very important. I realized afterwards. What'd you say? I can't you, remember you, the episode. I, like, you did make... Was I there? You were there. Cool. Um, I dubbed you in afterwards. Oh. You did make the point that obviously we encourage everybody to be vegan. Is the we should withdraw our support from these industries wholesale. But I think that in expressing these thoughts about different ways people can work on behalf of animals, it might have come off like I didn't rank veganism very high in terms of what you could do, which is not actually how I feel. Hmm. It's funny because I think most people who know me would maybe think of me, especially in the as past, an intolerant, yeah. militant, outrageously cartoonish vegan asshole yeah so just in case anybody was wondering you and i are both vegan we both believe that most everyone on the planet should be vegan is that what is that how we think of it though well no well i guess or, we don't think we, like you we, should be vegan you should be vegan or are are we vegan and we're interested in the destruction of the industrial slaughter of animals yep 
Like but when, still, I, when I meet, there some, has to be. Okay, when I meet I won't someone, this. go. Yeah, I'm just derailing it. I like the derailments can be good though. Okay, I'll derail it because if we ever did, which I don't think we did, we don't have any delusion that any large percentage of the population of the planet is going to adopt a vegan diet prior to total collapse of everything. Yeah, well, especially in Western nations where the large concentration, well, and I suppose like China now too, which in some ways could be considered a Western nation, I guess. In the places where there are obscenely high levels of consumption of animals, where most of the murdering happens. I agree. I think like advocates like to really play up the growth in vegetarianism, you know, like, oh, now it's at 3% or whatever. But yes, in reality, it will. I think we maybe discussed this before when we were talking about cultured meat. The reality is that the forced change to a less meat-heavy diet, like due to resource depletion and the physical lack of capacity to actually process livestock, process livestock, that will come way before any substantive percent of the population actually voluntarily goes vegetarian, let alone vegan. But I still, if I meet someone and they are not vegan, I wonder why. Right. Why? Why would you? Why would you eat those things? You know what happens? You know how that is made? Yeah. Do you understand what suffering is? No. (laughs) Yes. So just to, yeah, I just wanted to make that clarification because, I mean, my worst nightmare is people thinking that I'm not a militant hardcore vegan. It's my, uh, my entire identity is subsumed in it. (laughs) Anyway, so vegan Lucas, he left a comment and he draws our attention to the book Making a Killing by Bob Torres. I know the book. It's one of the few books in my life that I've read. (laughs) Period. Period. Yeah. Yeah, Bob. Nice guy. Him and uh, his partner, Jenna, used to do Vegan Freak Radio. Right. It was a podcast. Anyway, he he wrote this book, Making a Killing, which is kind of like a, a more radical leftist sort of Marxist analysis of the animal industries of veganism vegetarianism i think the way he writes about it he's taking an intentional marxist political economy analysis Mm -hmm. using those tools to kind of look at how does this play into class how do the economics work out among society and uh, it's a great book highly recommended making a killing by bob torres i think it's on ak yep but he draws our attention to it to say here is an analysis which simultaneously takes into consideration the class, the uh, colonial implications, you know, looking at something other than just purely focusing on animal rights when examining the issue. But also, he says that he still explicitly says he considers veganism the moral baseline of the animal rights, animal liberation movements. That's an important part of the phrase, a baseline for the animal rights, animal liberation movements. Because he's not saying it's a baseline for people who claim to care about animals. But if you're saying that you are part of this movement, you consider yourself a proponent of animal liberation, that he's saying veganism is the moral baseline because it is, quote, the daily lived expression of abolition in one's life and a rejection of the logic of speciesism, which I can get behind. And I think, I mean, I think that the point's, that I made to you the other day, which I thought of on the spot and didn't really think through and still haven't, is that if you think about it in terms of abolitionism, 
of the exploitation of animals and you make the parallel to say the abolition of slavery if you were someone in the mid 1800s who actively worked on behalf of the underground railroad trying to get slaves out of the south and up into the north or into canada and yet you still lived on a big plantation where you had slaves working the fields for you i guess you could call yourself an abolitionist and that you thought that people should not be slaves and you were working to gain individual freedom for some of them and yet you still profited off of their labor and still use people as slaves you know it's the inconsistency is jarring but the, but isn't but, that better than somebody who isn't running the underground railroad yes it is and isn't it a good cover for the person running the underground yes. railroad to appear to not yep. be an abolitionist which is and this is another thing you know we were talking about rod coronado specifically with the one blog post last episode which was just almost a bit of a distraction because it's just focusing on one person and if he may or may not be vegan and whether that may or may not internet be. speculation yes internet speculation but in the case of say undercover investigators that work for animal rights organizations who go work at slaughterhouses or in animal labs and work there for long periods of time in order to document what they see there often these people they they can't be vegan or even vegetarian for that period because they have to every day they're amongst these people and they have to have a cover so this could also be a case where you know obviously they're doing something for the greater good and the sort of puritanical approach to being an animal rights activist or you know being pro-animal liberation doesn't serve the greater good as much as the good that they are doing in those situations so these are few and far between there's not very many people who are doing this what crazy meat? hardcore work but what if they are what if everybody who's eating meat is, is actually, actually <laughs> raiding labs hmm, is that what you're all doing so lucas is saying he, he, suggest, he is suggesting he's that suggesting if you're going to call yourself an animal advocate then it logically follows that you would adopt a vegan diet yes it makes sense on paper to me mm-hmm. but the real world is a fucking irrational outlandish collection of people and culture and oddity so i don't i don't even expect it anymore yeah to be honest if people who eat cheese are willing to take down fucking slaughterhouse i'm not gonna say you can't be part of it you you have to you have to stop eating your cheese strings stop eating cheese craft cheese strings otherwise you can't come and help me take down this slaughterhouse Look, look, everybody, I'm trying to organize this takedown of the local slaughterhouse. And I just want to know one thing before we start. Has anybody here ever had a craft cheese string? <laughs> you? you? <laughs> when? In the past two weeks, you're, you can't help. What do you mean you're a demolition expert? I don't care. You eat cheese strings, you can't come. I feel like it is literally the least you can do. Being vegan. Yes. So if, you do, if you're doing more, then you're doing more than the least. But for people who are, for who consider themselves politically aware or activists or whatever, I often feel like the reason that veganism faces so much hostility is because out of all the things you can do, it is actually, like, we may think it's the least you can do for animals, but it is the thing that you have to consistently do every day mm-hmm. right and it, it does require a certain level of sacrifice from everybody else who just walks around and literally just does 
and eats and buys anything they want anything they have zero stipulations about what has gone into a product before they give someone money for it or before they shove it into their mouths and so because you actually have to think for two seconds before you do any of those things it actually requires far more effort than once a month going to some demonstration and acting indignant and putting on a balaclava and then you know going out and having a burger afterwards yeah we've talked about it before about how i mean you can be an anarchist and critical of the state or you can be an anti-colonialist and write detailed extravagant screeds against the state but no one expects you to if you don't do anything about it no one actually holds you to any account no you don't have to do anything you just have to say those things yeah you don't actually have to act on them but when you're vegan you actually have to do something yeah three to four times a day every day for the rest of your life yeah unless you're a fucking poser and if you don't do it people know you're a fucking poser yeah but if you if you're a fucking anti-colonialist academic fucking this and that anti-racist this and you don't do anything it's impossible to be a poser yeah you just, there's no baseline for a poser all, all you have to do is say that you are yeah and write stuff about it in flowery language oh fuck see right now I'm turning back into a hardcore militant <laughs> vegan right now you're doing the trick for me well there, is there a hardcore militant vegan because either, you're either vegan or you're not no, I guess it would be if you're going to get in people's face. I'm going to eat even less of no meat. I was a hardcore militant vegan, I think, because none could escape my 17-year-old verbal wrath, yeah. which was expletive-laden. I don't care. There's a fucking place for that anyways. It's true. Anyway, so thank you for your uh, we, we feedback. We didn't even say anything about what he Vegan Lucas. That well, was a- he was pointing us to Bob Torres' book yeah. and saying that... We didn't say much about it. Considering veganism is a moral baseline does not exclude taking into account all of the other moving parts that go into the industrial food system, how it relates to class, how it relates to colonialism, how it relates to race or gender or everything else. You can meld all these things together, which he feels that Bob does in this book. Read um, the book. Read the fucking book. Uh, there was also a comment from Mikkel who pointed us to a book and a project called Sista Vegan. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it. Yes. And uh, mm. he said, I'm surprised the book Sista Vegan was not mentioned in the discussion about decolonization. So was I. I so it, shocking. I used it with my students last year and got a fair amount of positive reaction from young folks, some of whom had probably never even heard of veganism. So I checked this out, their Twitter feed. seems like it's maybe one woman who primarily runs it, but she's an African-American woman who runs this project. and Representing all African-American women, right? Clearly, clearly. But it's good to get perspectives from otherized, racialized segments of society who mm. embrace veganism and animal rights. I'll put that in the show notes too. Sister Vegan. You can check it out. That was it? So some good That's feedback. That's all he said? What about it? Well, what about Sister Vegan? Uh, he said, it, if, you, if you're interested in connections between veganism yeah. and decolonization, yeah. check out Sister Vegan. Oh. So I'll look at the show notes. How do I get to the website? So continuing on our discussion of veganism and colonization because no one is sick of this topic yet they want to hear more tell me if you've heard about the seal fee campaign Chris. i vaguely heard of it there's a hashtag on twitter okay have you heard of ellen degeneres ah yes ellen degeneres 
She's very generous. What's her name? Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> That's her real name? Yeah. That's funny. Uh-huh. Ellen of Generous. So at the Oscars, your favorite, this is your favorite media event. I know you watch it. You have the Oscar party where you get dressed up fancy with all your friends. So you, so you obviously saw this when Ellen took a celebrity selfie mm. with a bunch of actors, or as my friend Ben likes to call them, skin puppets at uh, the Oscars. What does skin puppets mean? They're puppets made out of skin because oh. they just do what people tell them to and that's how they make a living Oh, because they're like puppets actors. Get it? Okay. The Picture. celebrity selfie and it was, it became the most retweeted tweet ever. Wow. Yeah. What an accomplishment. Put that on my gravestone. So as a reward, as a reward for the fabulously rich celebrity white person uh, having the most retweeted tweet ever with her photo of other fabulously rich celebrity white people samsung yes. the electronics maker with which she took the selfie a samsung phone okay said that they would donate three million dollars yeah to two charities of her choice three million dollars three million dollars so one of the charities she chose for 1.5 million dollars is the humane society of the united states Okay. And the Humane Society of the United States... Could have been worse. Could have been worse. ...is active in the anti-Atlantic sealing campaign. Okay. They're opposed to the Atlantic Canadian commercial seal hunt. The industrial slaughter of seals to make furs for rich European people. Yes. Okay. And this has been a long, controversial issue in Canada for decades. Okay. Uh, And, I mean, it's dying is on life support. The industry. The industry okay. is on life support in Canada, courtesy of the conservative Good Canadian to know. Government. So get your furs now. Yeah. Yeah, because pretty soon, rare items. Get my hat, my big fur fucking hat now. Do you make seal hats? Yeah, there's seal hats, all sorts of seal clothing. Use the skins for stuff. I don't know. What do People you- eat the meat, but I don't know. In the Atlantic seal hunt, I don't know what they do with the meat. I, I maybe sell it to China? I don't know. Well, we'll get into that, but the conservative government is trying to stimulate right. a seal meat Find market. new markets. Yes, in China. And then Ellen had some comments, I think, when they announced this donation about seal hunting, okay. you know, and how disgusted she was with it and how it was so terrible. Because you see these images of the, of the sealers out on the ice clubbing seals to death. Right. It's very graphic. So some Inuit, some northern Inuit people or people with their roots uh, in northern Canada, First mm-hmm. Nations people. Above the tree line above the tree line who have a traditional seal hunt traditionally eat seal meat use seal furs they took offense to this and i think perhaps anticipating a reaction that they would get from settler society when a celebrity like ellen talks about seal hunting you know and calls it barbaric or whatever and they feel like that is an attack on them despite the fact that it has nothing to do with indigenous seal hunting yeah a myth to bust here is that there has ever been any animal rights campaign or animal rights organization which has campaigned to end the northern canadian inuit seal hunt it's just it's never happened they've never been a target it is always focused on the much larger settler atlantic canadian commercial seal hunt right and which makes sense which makes sense Right. But nonetheless, there was this reaction. So they started this because Ellen had posted this selfie. 
they started the seal fee campaign, okay. which was then photos of Inuit people who live in Canada mm-hmm. wearing seal furs, posing with various seal products, eating seal meat. Mm-hmm. And then Inuit throat singer, famous Canadian Inuit throat singer, Tanya Tagak, posted a photo of a freshly killed seal lying down on some rocks next to her baby, her young baby, and posted that as her seal fee. And there was a bit of a a social media explosion around this. All right. Um, Again, with people conflating the Atlantic seal hunt with with Inuit Inuit seal hunt. And following that, she actually like fully engaged with people on Twitter talking about the difference, you know, and how even after she's explained to people that we live in this area where no food grows. This is our traditional diet. You can't afford to buy food at the grocery store here. It's so insanely expensive. This is our subsistence. This is like what we eat. But people were still adamant that it's just, it's a whole range of people not seeing the difference, not making the distinction between the two, which to me is very stark. You know, she was making the point with people, you live in places surrounded by McDonald's and slaughterhouses. Yeah. Like the level of destruction that happens in your cities is so far, you can't even compare it. And the level of outright barbarism is dwarfs barbarism of clubbing a single seal. Well, and they don't even, I mean, they don't even club the seals in the north. It's like, yeah, they shoot them. They shoot them. Yeah. I mean, it's splitting hairs, but the people posting these selfies, I think were, it was an understandable reaction to what they predicted would be the backlash against their traditional hunt because part of it rubbed me the wrong way in that i'm seeing people i mean you're talking about how you have you know a greater respect for the land and the animals on it and this is a subsistence hunt but then posting these pictures it's almost like posting a trophy picture i understand the point behind it but i don't know how respectful that is to the animals to shoot them in the head and then take this picture you know saying like this is my selfie you know hunting is awesome right. you know but on the other hand obviously we are simply immune to all the other crass expressions of animal death that we see around us leather shoes everywhere is how is that less barbaric someone walking down the street wearing the skin of an animal than somebody beside a picture of a dead seal yeah yeah it's not but because it's not normalized for urban dwellers or settlers in canada and elsewhere the optics of it seem so Without without understanding the context, they see it as no different than somebody posing with a trophy buck or whatever. Yeah, we like you know. the sanitized version where you get nice leather shoes with no blood pouring out of them. Or meat wrapped in, in, in plastic in a styrofoam tray. Mm-hmm. But the reason that I thought this was interesting, I thought it, it showed a few key things. Number one, it shows an ignorance on behalf of settler society of how people in the North actually live even understanding how anybody would live if they lived up above the fucking tree line yeah where nothing grows yeah yeah a total disconnect of that there actually exists a population of people in canada who a even have a traditional diet like this and b this is their diet out of absolute necessity you know it's not some it's not some lifestyle choice or whatever someone might think it is yeah, the lifestyle choice is the one being imposed on people by the state to go fucking buy a $14 can of fucking lard and beans mm-hmm. out of a fucking dusty yeah. old shelf at the corner store. If anybody's unfamiliar with what food prices are like in Canada's north, like you, you literally would not believe. But what it also shows is the efficacy 
of the pro seal hunt Canadian government's PR campaigns on behalf of that hunt. To confuse people. To confuse people. And it works on the indigenous people who are taking part of this campaign as well because they are under this impression that is not reality based that animal rights campaigners want to stop their traditional hunt which right. has never been the case right and even the eu ban on seal products explicitly excludes excludes the inuit hunt and products of the inuit hunt so it even excludes the commercial export of seal products from the, the inuit hunt so our friend dylan powell here he comes up again two episodes in a row wow must be some sort of record he had written a piece about a year ago specifically about the conservative government's use and misuse the appropriation of inuit people in order to try to defend the seal hunt grasping at straws to keep this thing going and they had mounted a pr campaign which put inuit people front and center even though again the eu ban has nothing to do with the inuit hunt and something like three percent of people involved in the atlantic seal hunt are actually inuit or first nations and even then their involvement is at the very bottom level like literally on the ice killing seals they don't share in any of the other benefits up the supply chain they're not the ones making big bucks off of this right this is a settler industry through and through and it's been a very conscious conflation of the two uh, in order to create this confusion and to create a division between animal rights activists and first nations which is hilarious because the fucking harper government is eviscerating the future of indigenous populations yeah and especially in the north because that's one of the big so dylan in this article he goes through kind of the big lies we'll of course we'll link this uh, in the show notes he goes through these these big lies or myths you know that surround the atlantic seal hunt and yeah one of them is that animal rights activists want to have an impact on traditional first nations cultures in this regard which is not true the other is that they have any interest at all in the long-term health or economic well-being of people in the north the harper government the harper government which they absolutely do not you know it's simply a ploy to try to get votes if they can pit the animal rights activists as the enemy or environmentalists or environmentalists yeah because the same goes for tar sands tar sands developments pipelines uh offshore drilling in the arctic all of this just divide and conquer and you have communities that are economically desperate and have been completely marginalized so you know when you have a carrot that you can offer um so to speak so to speak not an actual carrot when you have a never seal fin there. and the other point related to that is that this lie that somehow if only they have the support they can rejuvenate this industry the industry is dead like it's on its way out all around the world you know sealing industries have collapsed the eu you know has a ban which was a major market there is no reviving this and it's just a lie to say you know to go to the inuit communities and say think of the economic boom we could bring we are going to start selling seal meat to china and there's a burgeoning market there uh you know it's all just a ploy for votes and uh divide and conquer movements that should be in concert with each other and unfortunately you know as this shows i think it's been incredibly effective which is why all this discussion in the past couple of episodes is exciting because it is 
clearing the air and allow and showing showing the way to connect the two things mm-hmm. to connect indigenous struggles to an animal advocacy perspective yeah and i think the last point that dylan makes in this article which i think is you know really important he made the, the same point in his his article on on animal rights and and colonialism that we discussed last episode is that the there's also been a profound failure on the part of the animal rights movement and i think the environmental movement though i think with this keystone xl and and tar sand stuff i think perhaps the environmental movement has been getting a lot better at connecting with the communities that are directly impacted mm-hmm. but there's been a a total failure on the part of the animal rights movement to actually talk to these communities you know make themselves known create those relationships you know and make sure they understand this is not about us fighting your traditions of your culture this is about us fighting an industrial system of murder that our fucking ancestors have imposed on this place and is part and parcel of colonialism and everything else so he kind of puts it out there as a call we have to get our shit together we can't live in these silos where we focus on one thing and and we refuse to build these relationships because it just just doesn't work so that's why we have decided to spend all this time sitting in your basement talking to microphones. Yes. Because we can't silo it off. No. We have to get out there in the community and release a podcast. Anyway, um, I got to go now. Can you open the airlock for me? Sure. You got your hazmat suit on? Uh, yeah. One second. See you later. Thanks for tuning in for episode 20 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by Monsanto scientists. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio. To join the discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us very closely on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links in our email sign-up form can be found on our website. If you like the show and want to support us, there are two things you can do. One, you can give us your money by donating on our website. Probably not a very good idea. Two, you can go to iTunes and you can rate and review the show so other people know how amazing it is to be entertained by us two fanciful, beautiful gentlemen each month in your ears on your music player. Arrangements for cash donations can be made discreetly through Chris's personal email account. 